for the next two weeks, we're going to return to a resource that I go to periodically. And, and the resource is called the New City Catechism. A catechism is a question and answer teaching tool that's been used throughout generations in church history as um, a, a, an avenue to better understand and to articulate certain elements of the faith. Now, this particular document, the New City Catechism, it's a kind of a modern rendition. It's done by the Gospel Coalition, a modern rendition of the Heidelberg Catechism, which came out in the, uh, the 16th century. Now, we have, those of you who've been here for a while know that we have gone off and on through these. There's 52 total questions. We're going to be looking at questions 21 and 22. So, you know, we, we hit a few of them a year. Um, but I have good news is that officially we're out of part one. Right? There's three parts. Part one focused on creation. It focused on, um, or it's focused on, excuse me, God, creation, and the fall, as well as the law. I think a, a funny thing about this is the Heidelberg Catechism, as I said that this is based on, calls this first section the misery of man. How's that for like a, an encouraging, uplifting title? But the idea behind it is that you kind of got to get through, wade through some of the bad news to, for the good news of Jesus Christ to make a little bit more sense. What is it that he's saving us from? Now this morning we're going to look at two of the questions. Uh, the first question, which is going to be the theme both for this week and next week, and you'll see what that is in just a moment. Remember, uh, the, the, the end of part one ended with the question of uh, why we need a Redeemer. Right, to bring us back to God. So we, we have kind of been built, building up this theological premise that we need a Redeemer. And question 21, let's see, pull this up here. Question 21 asks this. What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? And here's their answer. One who is truly human and also truly God. So what type of Redeemer is needed? One who is truly human and truly God. And so this question, or this answer in particular, helps to give us some type of picture of the nature of Jesus, how he was both human and at the same time divine. Now this arrangement, how this arrangement worked, is something of a mystery, right? I, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I don't, and I presume you don't either, uh, are at the same time a, a God person, right? We don't know what it is to be both divine and human. We don't have first-hand relationship between the relationship, uh, excuse me, first-hand experience between the relationship between those two natures. There's a lot over the years that has been written about this, what theologians call the hypostatic union, that Jesus was at the same time fully God and fully human. He wasn't a mixture of the two. It wasn't like he was 50% human and 50% God or 80% divine and 20% human. He was 100% God and at the same time 100% human. He didn't give up divinity at the expense of his humanity and vice versa. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Now, there's some of you who might be like, man, this is kind of a snooze fest, like I'm not into all this high-level theology. But the intricate nature of Jesus' humanity and divinity is really important stuff. Many, most of, I would say, the ancient heresies, those first 
few hundred years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus centered around trying to understand and grasp this union. Most of those heresies either diminished Jesus' humanity or his divinity. For example, there was, there was one group that was so focused on his divinity that they believed that Jesus was never truly human, that he only appeared, he only seemed to be here, kind of like a specter, so as not to taint his godness. Others believe that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem as we celebrated at Christmas, was just merely a human, but that this divine presence entered him into, in his baptism. It's called the adoption theory. Entered him in, during his baptism and then left him on the cross when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the kind of things that people have tried to process through, and, and those, both of the two that I expressed, are ones that were clearly denounced by the church in the first few centuries. But the reality is this wasn't a problem just back in the day. According to Christianity Today magazine, they say that a new Lifeway research study reports that only 41% of Americans, 41% of Americans believe the Son of God existed before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That means that 59% of Americans either do not believe or are unsure whether they believe, whether the Son of God existed prior to the Nativity. Now, just to kind of blow out the statistic a little bit, about 65% of American adults would identify as Christian in our, in our country. So that means, if we're looking at these statistics, 24% of Americans who are at the same time Christians probably argue this is like 50% of Christians, either don't believe or aren't sure what they believe of the Son of God existing prior to the birth of Jesus in the manger. That is some really bad theology. The Bible is clear that Jesus didn't just come to be in the manger some 2,000 years ago. That's why discussions around doctrine like this are really important because they shape our understanding of who God is. So over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the humanity of Jesus Christ and his divinity. So question 22, which is going to uh, direct our conversation this morning, is this. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? And here's their answer that in human nature, he, Jesus, might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weakness. So, this morning we're going to look at the three themes or facets of their response. First, that Jesus obeyed perfectly, Secondly, that he suffered punishment. And lastly, that he would sympathize with us. That those are all elements of his humanity. So let's start with his obedience. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed every facet of the law of God. Both that which was explicitly written, but also those things that were, we can infer from the text. 
Not only did Jesus keep the law like the Ten Commandments, right? He, he never suffered unrighteous anger. He never lied. He was always content in what God had gave him. But even more so, he never doubted the Father's love for him. I don't know about you, but that's something that I'm very prone to forgetting myself. His daily journey involved a deep reliance upon God's goodness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus succeeded, and he did what we were unable to ever accomplish. Now, because of that, because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, and we know that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm a hot mess sometimes, it's easy to kind of put Jesus as superhuman in terms of this. And he was, right, because he is divine. But remember, his obedience is a reflection of his humanity. Alexander Pope famously stated, to err is human. The very measure of humanity is often characterized by a propensity to err, to make mistakes, to sin. We have a tendency to take our everyday experiences and normalize them as what it means to be human. We often define humanity in terms of fallenness. That's what Alexander Pope's saying. If you make a mistake, you're in good company. That's what it is to be human. But I would argue that Jesus ought to be the standard of what it means to be human, not us. That he lived the life that humans ought to have lived. This is what we see in Romans 5, uh, 12 through 14, and also verse 17. Paul says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Humanity has struggled with sin because this is where the concept of original sin comes from. Because Adam sinned, because Adam and Eve were disobedient, we now are, are, are dealing with the consequences of that. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam is this type of someone who is to come. For if, Paul continues, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So we see from Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Right, what Paul is saying here, I know that's very wordy. I feel like sometimes you need a law degree just to understand Romans. But what Paul is saying here is that where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Jesus was not doing anything that Adam and Eve weren't supposed to be doing from the get-go of creation. Right, that's why at certain places in Scripture, Jesus is described as the second Adam. And so as we see from this catechism, right, that the obedience to the law was a qualification, a characteristic of his humanity, not his divinity. Now, Jesus was unique from the rest of humanity, that he was not a byproduct of the fall, right? The image that God stamped on his flesh had not been tainted by the infectious nature of sin over the years. But Jesus lived in the way that you or I were made to live. He lived in obedience, in reliance to God. Now, what this means for us, this is where some of the good news comes in, 
is that because Jesus obeyed God perfectly, when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive His obedience as our own. Right? This is what the Bible calls righteousness. We receive by no merit of our own efforts the credit for His perfection. That's why when we sing things like uh, that, that I'm enough, right? I'm not enough because of myself, but I'm enough because God is enough and has given His enough to me. Because Jesus was truly human, this is transferable to us, right? Jesus lived how humans ought to live, and because of that obedience, we are capable as humans of receiving that from Him. Now, uh, Augustine of Hippo, who was one of the most influential Christian writers of the early church, said it this way. He said, he who submitted to such great evils for our sake had done no evil. And although we, who were the recipients of so much good at his hands, had done nothing to merit those benefits. He says the receipt of this merit is freely given to us by Jesus. We don't need to work really hard in order to be viewed positively by God. Jesus has done it on our behalf. So that's obedience. Kind of what goes in tandem with that is suffering, the suffering of Jesus. Because of his humanity, he was able to be a perfect substitute for us. Not only did he live the perfect life that we were supposed to, obedience, but he also suffered and died to pay the debt that we owed for our disobedience. And this is the classical understanding of the death of Jesus Christ, that there's a substitution that took place on the cross. Jesus served as a barrier, shielding us from the wrath of God. Because of our disobedience, wrath was poured out, and Jesus kind of stood in the gap. Now, I know that this concept of the wrath of God is not uh, popular, especially in our day and age. I've read a number of theologians who have called the suffering of Jesus cosmic child abuse, or, you know, there's this seemingly increased discomfort with the concept of the wrath of God, and so people have tried to separate kind of this, this Old Testament way of understanding God where He's wrathful and vengeful and angry from the New Testament perspective of God where He appears gentle and gracious. But God is this, the Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that there's got to be ways that we can link those and understand this. But this doctrine of Christ's substitution for us is not new. It's the way that the early church understood his death on the cross. There's a man by the name of Athanasius of Alexandria. Uh, he was in the fourth century. Fun fact, he is the first writer, first church father, who put together all 66 books that we have in the Bible. He was the first one who said, I think these, this is the, the canon. That's not my notes. That's a little, just a fun fact for yourself. 367 was his Easter letter. Whence, he said this, whence by offering unto death the body he himself had taken as an offering and sacrifice, free from any stain, right? He was perfect. Straight away, he put away death from all his peers, fellow humans, by the offering of an equivalent. For being over all, the word of God naturally by offering his own temple and corporeal instrument, his body, for the life of all satisfied the debt by his death. Now, that's really wordy. But Athanasius says here, he makes a few points. He says, first, Jesus offered up to death this physical human body. 
Second, that this body was perfectly innocent, as we just saw in the first section, speaking to his obedience. Thirdly, through his death, he kept, through his death, he kept death at bay. You know, I don't know about you, I'll, it's Ravens week, I'll be watching the Steelers. Hopefully we see, you know, Najee Harris give a little stiff arm there to the competition. That's what, he, what, what Jesus did. He's keeping death at bay, keeping it away. And lastly, that death served to satisfy some type of debt that was owed. A payment needed to be made, and Jesus paid it. That was the position of the early church. So whether or not you want to hold to to the wrath of God, the suffering of Jesus canceled a debt. From the very beginning of, of church history, that is what they held to. It provided some kind of freedom for us. Now, just like his righteousness, his suffering also is able to apply to us as humans because of his humanity. Jesus identified with us in his obedience and his suffering so that we might receive credit for the positive and avoid the negative when we, avoid him, when we follow him as Lord. Now, if you've spent any time, any amount of time in church, this is probably an equation that you've, you've likely heard, right? That, that we get credit for his life and he takes on his sin for us and dies. You know, what did he, he lived the life that we should have and died the death that we deserved. We're so accustomed to it that I think sometimes it can lose some of its luster, that it can lose some of its incredulous nature. The fact that God, that, that Jesus, fully God and fully man, was willing to suffer on our behalf, I think should be mind-boggling. We were, the Bible tells us that we were enemies with God. And Jesus didn't do what we so often do with our enemies, which is to get revenge, to judge them. But God desired to make us friends, to make us sons and daughters. That God loved us so much that he took on himself the consequences for our actions. Jesus didn't do anything wrong, but he suffers as if he did. You want to try that at home? Try parenting your children that way. Right? Punish one child for what someone else did and see how long it takes before you've got a mutiny on your hands. Right? Because we get this in, innate in our nature. It is not fair. I should be judged based off of, if I'm a child, right? If so-and-so did something wrong, I shouldn't suffer the consequences of that. It wasn't right, it wasn't fair for Jesus to suffer. But he desired to do it for us. Paid the penalty for our disobedience. It occurs through his suffering and death. Paul highlights this in his first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1.23 he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The the death of the Christ, the divine deliverer, was a stumbling block and foolishness to the people who first heard about it, right? The idea that God himself would suffer and die is just ridiculous. How does God die? So if you follow that to the logical conclusion, you can see why some of those earliest heresies arose, struggling to live in the tension of the mystery of God's plan. If the divine part of Jesus merely fuses with him at his baptism and then leaves right before he dies, then there's no embarrassment, There's no embarrassment of the potential death of your God. 
If Jesus was never actually here in the flesh, but just a phantom, a mirage of the spiritual plane, then again, suffering is removed from the equation. But the humanity of Jesus was a necessary component to his suffering. Now I want to pause here for a moment and highlight our first take-home, our first piece of application. Because of the obedient life and sacrificial death of Jesus, we receive the benefits of his actions. As we've seen, that means that, that we're free from guilt, we're free from punishment associated with our failure to live up to God's standards. But what's more is that we don't need to feel stuck. We don't even feel like we need to wallow in our sins. We saw this this past fall. This is one of the reasons I love the gospel-centered life material, because the gospel frees us up not just from the consequences of the law, but it frees us up to obey the law. Not because we have to, not, not in order to gain God's favor, but because God loves us and has given us his favor, we are free to actually obey it. When we follow Jesus as Lord, his Holy Spirit begins to work inside, his transforming work within us slowly changing us more and more into the type of person that Jesus is. If Jesus is by definition the template of what it means to be human, to truly be human as I think he is, then the more that we follow in his footsteps, the more human we will continue to become. The more human of of God's design that we ought to have been from the get-go. Now, we come to to what I find most encouraging and and heartening of these three themes that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is able to sympathize with us and with our weaknesses. Now, the first two themes that we looked at are are beautiful truths of the gospel, but I have a tendency to approach them. uh, They come across sometimes as a little bit transactional. Jesus gives and we take or we receive kind of thing. As if Jesus just kind of gave us a gift and walked away. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And as a result, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and receive grace to help us in our time of need. Now, Jesus was tempted throughout his life. We see this explicitly described in the temptation in the wilderness with the devil, right? That that time where he tests Jesus three times to, you know, forget about the Father's plan with him, seize your own destiny, do it in your own manner. But this is why Matthew writes in chapter 4, right, one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Jesus is out there fasting for 40 days and nights, and Matthew writes, he was hungry. Now, we might think, well, of course he was hungry. He hadn't eaten for a month. But Matthew wants to be very careful that the reader does not get any kind of false notion that the trials were easy for Jesus. That just because he is, yes, he is human, but he's also God in the flesh. So he doesn't actually need to eat. No, he's a fully human, so he needs to eat. So he is hungry in that moment. He experienced in the human flesh those hunger pangs where it feels like your stomach is eating itself. 
He felt genuine temptation. In fact, you could argue that his experience of temptation went far beyond the scope of anything that we have or ever will experience. C.S. Lewis puts it brilliantly. He says this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is obviously a lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how, knows how strong it is. After all, he says, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. He's talking about World War I here. After all, uh, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a very sheltered life by always giving in. We never, and I think this is the really profound moment, we never find out the strength of the evil, evil impulse inside us until we try and fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full of what temptation means. The only complete realist. Now, if we take what C.S. Lewis is advocating for and put that on the passage in Hebrews that I read a moment ago, what I think it's saying is that because of the full humanity of Jesus Christ, he knows what it is and what it means to be human. He knows what we go through. As Lewis would say, even more truly than we do, he knows what it is to lose friends. He knows what it is to be betrayed by someone close to you. He knows what it is to be hungry and to be sad and to feel exhausted. He has felt the full range of human emotion and experiences. And Hebrews says that because of that, as a result of that, we can confidently draw near to him knowing that we're not going to be rejected. Jesus endured fierce temptation and persevered. But his integrity is not the, at the expense of his graciousness. Right? Have you ever had an experience where you have struggled mightily with something, only to have a friend or a family member or a co-worker treat you with condescension, make you feel little just because it wasn't difficult for them? You feel small. You're like, why can't I get this as they belittle you? Now, I know I've been the other person. I've been the one belittling, not intentionally, of course, you know, when I try to help my kids with math homework, right? Like, I've always been a numbers guy. Math's always come easy for me, but that's not always the case for anyone. And so I'm kind of like, how can you get this? How do you not get this? Like, if, if it says 11 minus 8, why do you keep saying 5? It's clearly not 5, right? It's obvious. Well, it doesn't mean it's obvious for everyone. Sometimes those things that we have conquered become the measure by which we judge others more harshly. That's how I work. Again, not intentionally. But Jesus lived the perfect life. But he doesn't do, do so in a stoic and judgmental manner where he looks down his noses at all those people who can't get their acts together. 
The Bible doesn't say that Jesus knows our weakness. It says that he sympathizes with it. In him, we have an advocate who petitions on our behalf with the Father. I don't know what you might be struggling with this morning. It could be a job that you hate, and you want to quit it. But if you do quit, you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, so you stick it out joylessly. You might be dealing with some really difficult conflict with a friend or a family member. You might be struggling with the loss of a loved one from COVID, right? You might have anxiety as the numbers of this pandemic continue to climb rapidly in our country. I know, I know one of my struggles right now is this, this week, our school district decided that they're going to go virtual, remote. I don't think it was the wrong decision, but for the next three weeks, my kids are at home. I have to continue to find ways to juggle parenting, homeschooling, and on top of that, my work as a pastor and council member in Swissvale. The truth is, I know that when I am in those situations, I lack patience. I can be short with my kids and with others. Nobody gets my best when I'm pulled in this many different directions. Whatever situation you are in, you can go to Jesus. You can be honest with what you're feeling. God, I'm really struggling to maintain my cool right now. God, I'm dealing with the bitterness for what that person said about me. God, I'm feeling de depressed because I had to bury another friend. Invite Jesus into those struggles because he knows, he sympathizes with how you feel. Now, as I said a moment ago, when we trust in the obedience of Jesus, we see the person, the one person who went before us and lived the, true, the only truly human life. In his suffering, we see his love and his affection bring us back into the family of God, making us more human in the process of transformation. But finally, his, his, his ability to sympathize it softens his gaze upon us. He didn't go through all of this begrudgingly. He didn't throw up his, his hands with exasperation and say, you know what, if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. He's our comforter. He's our redeemer. He walks with us on the path of our hardships. He says this in the Gospel of Matthew. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I think a lot of us are feeling that right now. We're feeling tired. We're feeling worn out. Jesus, because he's experienced those things, says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because I'm a harsh taskmaster, no, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus encourages us not to check our struggles at the door, but to bring them to him so that we might find rest from them. We might find someone who can walk alongside of us, 
to go before us, to go behind us, to hem us in on the sides. We find that in Jesus. Let me close in prayer. And I want to close with a prayer from a, a guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. I was reading this in one of my devotionals this week. Many consider him to be uh, the first existentialist philosopher. Existentialism is a strand of philosophy focused on what we know through our experiences, through our thinking and feeling. And I want us to join with his spirit in grasping the only hope that we come to when we come face to face with our struggles and sins. May his words that he penned a couple hundred years ago provide echo into our soul and give us the rest that we need from the love and generosity of God who willingly became human for our benefit. Let's pray together. God, your love covers the multitude of my sins. So that when I am fully aware of my sin, when before the justice of heaven, only wrath is pronounced upon me, then you are the person, the one person to whom I can escape. If I try to cover myself against the guilt of sin and the wrath of heaven, I will be driven to madness and despair. But if I rely on you to cover my sins, I shall find peace and joy. You suffered and died on the cross to shelter us from our guilt and take upon yourself the wrath that we deserve. Let me rest under you and may you transform me into your likeness. Amen.